This is Guns and Butter. They advertise in their brochures, in their newspapers, that if you think your neighbor is growing GMOs, canola or soybeans, whatever, without license, you should inform on your neighbor. And if a neighbor happens to do that to his fellow neighbor and reports to Monsanto that, that he thinks his neighbor's growing GMOs, he gets a free leather jacket from Monsanto or he gets free chemicals or whatever. And Monsanto will never ever pay in cash. It's always in a product. And believe me, right now, there's not very many farmers wearing Monsanto's jackets on the prairies because if they do, right away people say, well, there go, there's a ratter or a, a squealer and a ratter and an informer. But that's what they do. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Percy Schmeiser. Percy Schmeiser is a farmer and seed developer from Bruno, Saskatchewan, Canada, whose canola fields were contaminated with Monsanto's Roundup Ready Canola. Percy and Louise Schmeiser have farmed for close to 60 years. Almost on the verge of retirement, they decided to not back down from Monsanto's threats and intimidation. Percy and Louise Schmeiser recently spent a week in Sonoma County, California, at the invitation of local ecologists and organic farmers supporting Measure M on the November ballot. Measure M would put a 10-year moratorium on the production of genetically modified organisms in Sonoma County. Percy Schmeiser, welcome. Oh, it's great to be in Sonoma County, and I'm really enjoying the beautiful sunny weather and warm weather compared to the weather we have now back home in central Saskatchewan. Percy, you've been a farmer, a family farmer, I understand, for your entire life in Canada. Could you tell me a little bit about your background, how your family moved to Canada, where you're from? Well, my grandparents left Europe around the 1890s, and they first uh, moved to the United States. And in the early 1900s, they moved to Canada. And one of the big reasons they moved to Canada at that time was the Homestead Act, where uh, people could get a quarter section of land, 160 acres, for $10. And that was a great incentive for people, especially coming from Europe, where they never had the opportunity to own land. They now could own land for $10. So... My parents, for example, my father was born in Minnesota, my mother was born in in South Dakota. And so you had a mass migration of people coming to Western Canada. There was a policy to try and settle the West, especially the Northwest. So I I took the farm over for my father in 1947, and even today I'm only a third generation farmer, being 75 years of age. And... um, since taking the farm over from my father, I became known in Western Canada as a seed developer and a seed saver, uh, a seed developer in Canola, where for the last 50 years my wife and I were developing seeds and plants in Canola that were suitable for our climatic and soil conditions, but especially for disease control. We can grow many different crops where I come from, uh, in the grains especially, and also in the pulse crops like wheat, barley, oats, peas, lentils, and so on. But especially, I was really in love with and liked to grow canola. And um, we're in central Saskatchewan, and if you drew a line between the North Dakota border and Montana border and went up 250 miles, that's where we would be. 
We are about only 70 miles from what we call the tree line, which means it's the start of the Great Plains. And so we're very fortunate. We have very good land, and we seem to get the moisture when we need it, but we're dry land farmers, so we have to rely on anything, every moisture, every bit of moisture that we get. We have to be very concerned because as dry land farmers, we have to utilize it in the best possible way. One-third of our moisture comes from snow. Now, when you say you're a dry land farmer, what do you mean? There's no irrigation? That's right. There's no irrigation whatsoever. So everything has to be produced from what uh, the rains that we get and the snowfall in the wintertime. And so we have to really practice or have good farming practice uh, so that we can be able to produce these crops for a very limited amount of moisture. We're known as a semi-arid region of the prairies, where all our prairies are. So we really have to, as I said, practice good farming methods. That's very interesting. Then you you have to collect the water when it's available, is that it? No, it's just whatever it falls. You know, uh, um, we could probably, I know that when uh, I was young and before we had running water uh, back in the 30s that uh, we had cisterns and uh, the water was collected from the roofs and that was our water supply, but that was only for household use. Actually, also, if you happen to live on a farm that had a poor water supply or not, or couldn't uh, locate water by wells, then water was also saved in very large cisterns. Now, how large is your farm, and exactly what crops, in addition to canola, have you been growing? And I, I understand that, that you've worked the farm for, what, 55 years? Yes, since 1947, but I was involved with, my, with the family, when my, uh, with my father and mother and my brothers and my one sister, you know, when we were young. So, basically, I was associated with uh, farm life all, all my life, and uh, the farm, at one point, was around 1,400 acres which right now is an average-sized farm, even smaller than average, um, as the farms are getting larger. And um, right now, though, I've rented most of the land all out except the quarter section, which is 160 acres, uh, and I do that to keep that is so that I could maintain my farming status, that I could still be involved with agricultural committees and so on. You can own land, but if you don't physically uh, farm it, you're not considered a farmer. So as a result of that, you don't have farming status. And over the years, uh, I grew... Uh, Actually, wheat is one of the principal crops in our area, along as, as well as oats, barley, flax, and um, in later years, peas and lentils. But especially canola goes back to about the late 40s or the middle 40s uh, when we start producing canola. At that time, it was known as rapeseed. And as in many countries of the world, it's still known as rapeseed. So we call it canola in Canada and the United States because we were able to get the acid content down to a certain percentage. And after that, it was given a new name, canola. And a lot of people ask me, where did that word come from, canola? And the word came from Canada oil. And that's where that a lot of people don't know where that name came from. Percy, did you consider yourself an organic farmer? No, I was considered as a conventional farmer because I was using chemicals. Uh, I never, ever used an insecticide on my farm in all those 50 or 55 years of farming, but I did use herbicides to some degree. My wife was an organic farmer, and all our garden crops have always been organic. 
And if I look back, we were all organic farmers when I was young because my parents never used chemicals. They never used any fertilizers. And so, and with my wife being an organic farmer, and she came from a farm family that had always used conventional farming methods like no fertilizer and no uh, uh, chemicals. So they were organic farmers. Basically, everybody was an organic farmer. And when we got married, she continued on that practice to uh, raise foods organically. So I've all my life, I've ate organic foods, except when I possibly when I went to a restaurant. And so our children also, until they left, after they went to university and left home, they were also had ate basically nothing but organic foods. So the crops you were growing for sale, for instance, then would be considered conventional crops. That's right. And uh, the crops are the produce from the organic garden, my wife's organic garden. Basically, we never, ever sold that. She never, ever sold that. What we had in excess, and a lot of times a lot in excess, what we needed privately was given to food banks or other organizations like that to feed people that were hungry. We had a, a policy, a lot of people had this policy in gardening, is what we called plant an extra row. And now all that produce from that extra row went to the people that could not afford to buy food or to the food banks. And that's still in the practice today, and it's a good practice. So you plant an extra row of potatoes or an extra row of corn, all that went to people, to people you gave it away. Well, that's a very lovely idea. Mm-hmm. Now, you've become very famous for something that happened to you, what, seven years ago? 1998, and yes, it is uh, uh, seven years, and going on to eight years now. And um, as it was mentioned, I was a conventional farmer, but especially a seed developer. And like hundreds of thousands of people all over the world from year to year keep their seeds and plants for the following year. And uh, that's, so that's what we were doing, and especially in our case, we were see, uh, developing new seeds and new varieties of seeds or plants. Now, in 1998, and maybe I should say something before I go into more detail on that, is the fact, besides being a farmer, I was also uh, a member of parliament. I was mayor of my community. And basically, I've spent almost a third of a century in public life. But when I was in government, I was on many, many agricultural committees, both on the provincial level or state level, uh, but also representing my province on the federal level in l- rules, laws, and regulations that I always felt and prided myself would benefit farmers. So all my life, I've been associated with agriculture. And so what happened to me then in 1998 was this. Without any prior knowledge or information, Monsanto laid a lawsuit against me. And it was a uh, patent infringement lawsuit, and it was because they had said that I was growing Monsanto's GMOs, genetic modified organisms, or a genetic altered gene, in my canola without permission from them, without a license from them. And that really concerned us at that time because we now thought that we have a genetic modified organisms or a patented gene in our crop, in our canola crop, it would have destroyed 50 years of research and development. And that is exactly what happened. Uh, We found that our field had been contaminated against our wish. And um, so that's what the lawsuit was about, patent infringement. But... They also said in that lawsuit initially 
that we had somehow obtained a seed illegally, whether from a seed house or from someone, planted it and thereby grew it. Monsanto's genetic altered canola without a license. So we stood up to Monsanto and said, if you have any of your GMOs in our crops, in our canola crop, you should be guilty for the damage you have done and causes destroying our property and basically 50 years of research and development. And um, patent laws, like in most countries of the world, especially especially United States and Canada, come under federal jurisdiction. So it would go then to Federal Court of Canada. And that's exactly what happened. We had one judge. And how often, how often we wished we could have had a judge with a jury with farmers on that knew and understood farming. But that did not happen. But in the two years of pretrial, before the main trial, Monsanto withdrew all allegations that we had ever obtained their seed illegally. But they said it didn't matter. They had found some of their GMO canola plants, not even in my field, at that time, but in the ditch along one of our fields. And we had eight fields planted into canola in 1998, about 1,030 acres. So that was the basis it went to Federal Court of Canada. And after two and a half weeks of trial, what the judge ruled, what that trial judge ruled is what made my case become internationally known. And this is what he ruled. Number one, it doesn't matter how Monsanto's GMOs get into any farmer's fields or into his crop seeds or plants and he mentioned how this could happen cross-pollination is one direct seed movement by birds by wind by bees or transportation when farmers haul their grains or their canola to the market or when they're seeding it and he went on to say if that happens to an organic farmer or a conventional farmer like myself a farmer no longer owns their seeds or plants they all become monsanto's ownership Well, that was like a bombshell throughout the world when a federal court ruled that. So when this this happened, we then had the Department of Agriculture from Saskatchewan come in to take samples from all my fields, and they were sent then to the University of Manitoba, where two scientists analyzed their seeds to see what contamination really was in my canola fields. Two of my fields had no contamination, Some had 1%, 2%, 8%, but in the ditch along one of the fields, it was around 60%. And at that time, we realized that it had to come from direct seed movement because at that time, there was very few canola crops grown, or GMO canola crops grown. And we spent a lot of time and a lot of money to find out where possibly the contamination came from. And we did find out Uh, because Monsanto had to admit or to give evidence in the court who they sold canola to, GMO canola to, since since when it was introduced in 1996. And lo and behold, one of my neighbors, right next to me, with not even a fence line in between, had grown Monsanto's GMO canola, and it had spread into my field. So uh, we knew where the contamination came from. We knew what the level of contamination was. And this is what the judge ruled on that. He said it doesn't matter, first of all, where it comes from. And he went on to say, even from the fields that tested, no contamination in, he said, I still violated Monsanto's patent by having it there because there was a probability, because we were seed savers, 
that and using our seeds from year to year that also those fields probably could have some in. And he ruled that all the profits from 1,030 acres of canola goes to Monsanto. He also ruled that all our seeds and plants have to be delivered up to Monsanto and we were never allowed to use our seeds or plants again. So it took our total rights away as a farmer to ever use our seeds again. And this has happened now to thousands of farmers across the prairies and the northern plains of the United States where your total right to use your seeds grown on your own land, land that you pay the taxes on, land that's been in your family for a hundred years, you're not allowed to use your seeds or plants again. I'm speaking with Canadian farmer and seed developer Percy Schmeiser. Today's show, Monsanto Corporation and Genetic Modification, Part 1. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. So you're saying that if there is any contamination from GMOs, from Monsanto GMOs, in any of your crop or any of your seed, that the entire crop and the entire seed supply is now the property of Monsanto Corporation. Is that right? That's exactly correct. It doesn't matter how it gets there under patent law. Now, here's an interesting thing. They have a patent on a gene. And wherever that gene gets into, they own and control that life form. Now, an average seed or plant probably will have 33,000 genes in it. By just the contamination of Monsanto's one gene gives them total ownership of your total plant and uh, seed. So it's unbelievable. Now, when that judge ruled that, then we applied to the Federal Court of Appeal to hear our case and, um, and now we had three judges, but it was very narrow in scope. Uh, federal courts of appeal will only address points of law, facts of law, or where the judge erred in law. So that's all that could be brought up. And what the three judges ruled then, federal court appeal, was this. They didn't agree with all of the trial judges' decisions, but they still upheld it. And at that point in time, it should have been thrown out if they didn't uphold all of his decisions. So I then lost two battles. I had lost the federal court, federal court of appeal. There was one avenue left for us, and that was the Supreme Court of Canada. Now, by that time, it was over four years, four and a half years. We had spent close to $300,000, and we, we didn't really have the financial resources anymore to continue on. And uh, we had mortgaged our land to help pay our legal bills, disbursement costs, and so on. But anyway, we finally made a decision that we would try and uh, proceed ahead, and we put everything that we owned on the line. And it was some of the greatest news for us when the Supreme Court ruled in our favor they would hear the case. But now we could bring up many more other items. We could bring up uh, such things as uh, has a farmer's ancient right, his ancient right to continue to use the seeds and plants from year to year be maintained? What about new superweeds and noxious weeds that were mutants that had developed? Who is responsible? Uh, there were other items we brought in, but the most important one that we brought in at, by that time, we felt, was who owns life? Has anyone the right to patent life? And, uh, and control life, an individual or corporation. And then we felt there was such a strong moral and ethical issue here. First of all, the rights of farmers being taken away, never to be able to use their seeds or plants again, but the whole issue of who owns life. Shall anyone be given the, the authority or permission 
or under patent law to control and own life. So that's the basis went to the Supreme Court. Now, uh, the decision from the Supreme Court came down in May of 2004, and this is what they ruled. Number one, first of all, we never had to pay Monsanto one red cent. Monsanto, if we would have lost, probably would have been able to claim about at least a half a million dollars with court costs, they said license fee, punitive damage, and everything else. So I won that part. But the, on the issue that we brought forward to Supreme Court about if Monsanto's patent on a life form or Monsanto's patent on a gene is valid, this is how they ruled, and that's very important. They ruled that Monsanto's patent on a gene is valid. And wherever that gene arrives into any higher life form, and I use the term higher life form because the seed or a plant is a higher life form, however it arrives, and they went on to mention, as I mentioned before, cross-pollination or seed movement and so on, or by whatever methods, they own and control that life form. And that was a startling decision from the Supreme Court. It was a 5-4 decision, a split decision. Now, where do you stop? If Monsanto owns and controls any life form that that gene gets into, by whatever means, seed, plant, birds, bees, animals, ultimately a human being, does that say no, they own you, they control you, or they own and control me? So there's more questions now than there are answers from the decision of the Supreme Court. But maybe in the wisdom of the Supreme Court, of the judges, this is how it was worded, as I said, they own and control. Now, if you own and control something, and you put it into the environment, like the seed or a plant, with that gene in, and you can't control it because you can't control Mother Nature, you are now liable for the damages you do to other people's property. So now you have uh, the liability issue. When they destroy, after the release of a GMO into the environment, destroys the property of others. So that's where that whole case sits now. As a result of my case, and we've had GMOs now for 10 years in Canada, it's no longer a matter of, of what can happen or may happen with GMOs released into the air environment. It's now what has happened because we have that experience. And there are some very, very important items I would like to mention, especially here now in Sonoma County. Number one, there's no such thing as containment. Once you release a GMO gene, a new life form into the environment, you can't contain it. You can't contain cross-pollination, the wind, the birds, the bees, and so on. So it will spread. And many times they will say, even in many countries today yet, oh, you can contain it, farmers have a choice. There is no choice left once you introduce GMOs. Uh, so you cannot contain it. The other important issue is there's no such thing as coexistence. Once you introduce the GMO gene into any species of seeds or plant, it's a dominant gene, and it will take over whatever species of seeds or plants it gets into. If it gets into an organic farmer's crop and a conventional farmer's crop, it will render those seeds and plants also GMO. So eventually you only get down to one varieties of seeds or plants. So uh, that's why there's no such thing as coexistence. Remember, it's a dominant gene. I often get asked, if you introduce GMOs, what about calling back? 
as far as I know, with scientists uh, giving me information from all over the world or receiving information from scientists, they say at the present time they don't know how a new life form can ever, ever be recalled back. So once you introduce, if you ever introduce GMOs into Sonoma, remember there's no calling back. It will always be here. So the future, or what it will do in the future, what will it do not only to us now, as parents or grandparents, whatever, what will it do down the road or in the future to our children and grandchildren who possibly could be eating GMOs? So the implications are vast. Those are some of the main issues in regards to that you can't contain it and there's no such thing as coexistence. There is no longer choice. Already in Canada, there are two crops that organic farmers no longer can raise. That's soybeans and canola. Our total seed supply and both those crops in Canada are now totally contaminated with GMOs. And it doesn't stop there. Canola comes from the Brassica family, has many close cousins as well as distant cousins. Close cousins like radishes, turnips, cauliflower, and so on. Distant cousin like wild mustard is already cross-pollinating into those garden crops, rendering more crops garden crops now, GMO, which organic farmers no longer can raise or grow. So it will spread and spread and spread. And that's why we don't want to see any more new GMO crops introduced into the environment. Four principal crops in North America that are GMO are soybeans, corn or maize, cotton and canola. Monsanto has wanted to bring in GMO flax, GMO wheat, GMO alfalfa, and GMO rice. And believe me, if GMO alfalfa or GMO wheat was ever introduced, we would totally destroy the organic farmers. We All our plants eventually then and food would be GMO because wheat or alfalfa basically from the grass family. So everything would be contaminated. Our full total food chain or food supply would be contaminated with GMOs. And that's why the farmers were up in arms that no regulatory approval should be given to Monsanto for any new or any other company for any new GMOs to be introduced in the environment. We've seen what has happened with the introduction 10 years ago with GMOs in those four that I mentioned. Now, a lot of people ask me, why did farmers ever start growing GMOs? And that's a very good question. And you have to go back to 1996 when regulatory approval was given. This is what farmers were told. And I hear the same thing now here in Sonoma County. I hear the same thing in Europe and many third world countries of the world when I traveled there. Farmers were told this, first of all, more nutritious. Number two, a bigger yielder. It would produce more. And number three, I think that was the most important issues to farmers, less chemical use, less harm to the environment, less harm for human beings. Now, Percy, these are the claims that Monsanto Corporation made to sell its GMO, its genetically modified organisms to farmers, right? That's correct. Those are the claims that were made in 1996, 7, and 8. But those claims are no longer made. You never hear, oh, there were some of the other things they made, what we call buzzwords. They said that now we would be, we would be able to feed a hungry world. Now we would always be have sustainable agriculture with the introduction of GMOs. Well, everything was further from the truth because within two years, 
we saw the beginning of what would happen with the introduction of GMOs. Number one, the yields went down drastically. Number two, the nutritional value of the grains went down that were GMOs. And number three, we had a massive, and today yet a massive increased use of chemicals, especially isophate, because we now have mutants that have developed within two years after the introduction of GMO canola, and we call them super weeds, which now takes at least three chemicals, an increase of three times more chemicals than ever before. So now we have more harm to the environment and more damage to human health with this massive increase of chemical use, plus the added dangers and health effects that we now see, not only to human beings, but to animals and our environment with the introduction of GMOs. So now we have the dangers of the GMOs, plus the increased use of chemicals. So everything that Monsanto told farmers back in 1996, 7 and 8, turned out to be completely false. And yet I travel to other countries of the world now, I hear the same thing. What does Monsanto say to farmers now about GMOs in Western Canada and the northern plains of the U.S.? They say, well, it's a better tool for farmers to control weeds in its crops. Well, believe me, long before our Monsanto ever came out with chemicals, farmers were controlling weeds in crops. We didn't need the Monsantos of the world to grow crops or to control weeds in crops. But that's what they're saying now. I'm speaking with Canadian farmer and seed developer Percy Schmeiser. Today's show, Monsanto Corporation and Genetic Modification, Part 1. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. What is this superweed that you're describing? Is this part of the canola plant, or is it a separate weed? Uh, a superweed is this. Back in 1996, Monsanto was not the only company selling GMOs. You also had two other companies at that time selling, and their varieties were Liberty Link and Pursuit Smart, as well as Monsanto's Roundup Ready Canola. Within the first year, you had a cross-pollination between those three GMO crops all into one regular conventional canola plant, taking at least three, three different chemicals to try and control this new super weed. And this super weed has spread out through all the western prairies. Right now, it would almost be impossible to find one field in western Canada that now would not have that super weed in. And it would be in wheat fields, in barley fields. It's in our towns. It's in our cities. Uh, whether it's university grounds, golf courses, shelter belts, and so on. It has spread out throughout our total countryside, road allowance. Now it's even an added cost now to municipalities and other organizations to try and control this new super weed. And can you imagine if this new super weed is in grain fields or barley fields, these farmers, these grain growers, now have a new additional cost to try and get rid of this super weed. And remember, this super weed has the GMO in it. So even if particles are found in wheat or barley or oats, it contaminates those crops also. So it is. Uh, so that is what is called a super wheat. Now, the corporations have told us, and even Monsanto, as late as last year, said that they would try and develop a new super chemical 
to control this new super weed. And remember what they said in 1996, less chemicals. So now they have come out with a new, more highly toxic and powerful chemical than we've ever had before to try and kill this new super weed. And they've added a new, what they call an active ingredient to the Roundup active ingredient, which now makes it one of the most toxic chemicals on the face of the earth to use. Now, when I heard you speak about this, you mentioned that a large percentage of this new toxic chemical was actually Agent Orange. Is that true? Okay, the 2,4-D that is used at the present time, uh, it's a separate chemical, but it works well. They said if you can use this to try and kill the superweed, it's basically 70% Agent Orange. It's, it's the same chemical that was used in Vietnam and is now being used also in Colombia to destroy all plant or life forms also. And I just wanted to clarify one thing. The superweed is actually a weed. It's not the canola plant. It's, it's a canola plant that has developed into a superweed. See, if you have a canola plant in your wheat field, it's a weed to you. And if you have a canola superweed in, um, in your barley field, it's a weed to you because it's a contamination. So it basically becomes a weed. Well, then, uh, let me ask you this. Would a field full of genetically modified canola, is that the same thing as the superweed? It would be considered the same thing, but the superweed, again, has the genes of three, at least three other GMOs in it. So if you, had a, if you say, for instance, you bought seed from Monsanto, a GMO seed, basically there would be some contamination in there. There's nothing that is pure now once you introduce GMOs. They probably would have some of the other companies' GMOs in it because it would be impossible to grow uh, enough uh, seed in the open, which they would have to do when they sell it to farmers, to not have some contamination in it. But basically, uh, when you buy a GMO seed from whatever corporation, it would be uh, GMOs. But you could have some of those super weeds in your crop, in your seed also. And the reason I say that is you have to remember that a canola seed can lie dormant in the soil with no problem for at least 10 years. And soil and cl climatic conditions are right, it will grow. It's an oil seed. So you may think, once you grow GMO canola, well, I won't grow canola for many years, for five years or six years. I should have no problem if I want to go back to conventional canola. It doesn't work that way. All of a sudden, you can have a canola plant reappear or germinate. Canola doesn't germinate all at the same time. And to give you an example, how it can increase. One regular canola seed can produce a plant that will produce at least 10,000 seeds. One little canola seed. So if you're just uh, contaminated, just a small percentage, within one or two years, your total field is totally GMOs. And the GMOs, the genetically modified organisms, are genetically modified to be resistant to pesticides, isn't that correct? Well, two things. Also, to, they're genetic engineered to basically to withstand a herbicide. So Roundup-ready chemical, is it's supposed to kill any green thing. And when you genetic alter a canola seed or a, um, a soybean seed, 
you genetically alter it to withstand that chemical, that Roundup. Everything else will die except the gene that's in those plants that have the genetic engineering in. So then this is why they had to come up with a stronger and stronger and more toxic chemical to actually kill the superweed because it was resistant to herbicides. Isn't that right? Exactly. And, and not only that, but there's other plants now, other weeds that we call weeds, are also getting immune. And two of those are buckwheat, wild buckwheat, and dandelions. Dandelions right now back home are almost totally resistant to uh, Roundup. So it sounds like a vicious circle to me. Well, it is. It's the whole policy was to sell more chemicals, not to decrease chemicals. So, and not only that, but it's a total control of the seed supply, where you have to buy your seed from year to year under the patent law and under their contracts. But the important things here, I think we have to remember that once you introduce it, there's no calling back, and everything will become GMOs in just a matter of a few years. And that is what has happened. That's not what could happen or may happen, but has happened throughout the northern plains and the prairies of western Canada. You know, there was other issues, many other issues, especially that happened to farmers back home is the economic issue. And I think the economic issue should be a very important one for people here and farmers, not only farmers, but everyone here in Sonoma. Sonoma County, because we have lost our sales on our canola to many, many countries of the world, including all of the European Union. We can't sell a bushel of canola to a lot of these countries. So the economic uh, effects have been really disastrous. Their prices have gone down. It's hard to sell. And the same thing has happened to farmers that raise soybeans in both our countries. So can you imagine that if you ever introduce GMOs into Sonoma County, where you produce a lot of grapes and you produce a lot of wine, that all of a sudden you would lose 80% of your market because once your grapes become contaminated with GMOs, a lot of countries in the world, the majority of countries in the world will not buy your wine. If there's some contamination, no matter how large or how small it is, if it's in your wine, they will not buy it. And that's what's happened to us in Canada and the United States with the introduction of GMOs in the crops that I've mentioned. So it would not only affect the grape producers or the winemakers or the vineyards, but it would also affect all the service industries that relate to the producing of grapes and the processing of wine and so on. So you can imagine the economic disaster it would be to your to your county. So it's more than just the issue of controlling seeds and plants, the danger to human health, or to the environment. It's the economic issue has become a very big issue. Now, I have heard you say that, of course, the genetically modified crops from Canada cannot be exported to Europe and Japan, other countries, so there is that loss, but that also that there have been price drops, uh, that the price of these genetically modified crops has dropped. That's right. To give you an example, uh, right now, the price of our canola uh, per bushel that farmers receive is only half that it was a few years ago. And it's got to the point that a lot of farmers don't even grow canola anymore because the costs are growing GMO canola. First of all, you had to buy the seed and you have to buy the chemicals from Monsanto. You have to pay a license fee to Monsanto. And then all of a sudden, the prices drop in half because your, your input cost to grow GMO canola is probably a thousand percent higher than if you use your own canola seed because of the increased use of chemicals, the license fee, and so on, as what I said. And plus, you have to use their chemicals. 
Well, I've also heard you say that farmers are required to sign contracts with Monsanto that are enforced, Mm -hmm. that um, you're required to only use their seeds. You have to pay, what did you say? $15 an acre for a license fee. Uh, You can never use your own seed. You must only use Monsanto's seed. You only can use Monsanto's chemicals. You can't buy chemicals from somewhere else. Then also, if you happen, if a farmer happens to commit some violation for whatever reason, and Monsanto comes after him and makes him destroy his crop or takes all of the profits from his crop. Can you imagine if a person that's growing grapes here and all of a sudden was contaminated or did something wrong and all his profit from his grapes or he was made to destroy 500 acres of grapes or 100 acres of grape, what the economic loss would be to him? It basically destroys a farmer. And what is happening to thousands of farmers across the prairies in northern plains, it basically bankrupts farmers. One thing that I wanted you to speak a little bit about is that I have heard you say that genetically modified organisms have taken all free will away from farmers, that farmers are no longer left with any choices. That's right, because once you introduce GMOs, uh, it's a dominant gene, as you said, there is no such thing as choice. Choice is taken away. And that's what the corporations, especially Monsanto, used to say. Well, farmers don't have to grow GMOs. They, they can grow some other conventional crop. There is no such thing because of the dominance of that gene, choice is taken away. You no longer have a choice. And they no longer say that now, but they do say it in other foreign countries where they don't know or know very little bit about GMOs. But there's other items in that contract. Uh, Another item in that contract is that you must permit Monsanto's police. In Canada, we call them gene police. Uh, to come on your land for three years after you sign that contract, or if you're contaminated, with or without your permission, they can go in your granaries, they can go into your fields to take samples, they can get your tax records, your farming records, and anything that they want, with or without your permission to check on what you're doing. So you have to sign this non-disclosure statement, whatever they did to you. That means I couldn't talk to you or the press or to my neighbors, what Monsanto has done to you. Can you imagine now the freedom of speech of farmers, the freedom of expression is taken away. I'm not talking about some third world country. I'm talking about Canada and the United States, where we thought, I thought we had democracy and we had freedom of speech. That is being lost to these corporations now. So there's another clause, is that a farmer now no longer can take Monsanto to court for whatever reason, he could never sue Monsanto. If something, if he has some injustice from Monsanto, he can't sue them or take them to court, as I said. So even his right to protect himself is taken away. Another, and this is a clause within the contract that a farmer signs? That's exactly correct. But what happens if you're contaminated and you've never signed a contract? The same thing applies because you have Monsanto's gene on your property and the courts rule the mere presence of Monsanto's GMOs in your field or in your seed, you violate the patent and you're subject to all those conditions. Now, Percy, could you describe to us how the contamination in the ditch by your field was discovered? Well, first of all, I have a main power line going alongside my field in the ditch. And there's a policy of the power corporation back home is that if farmers are very careful to uh, control weeds 
And if weeds are grown in the ditch or around the power poles, in my case I had power poles, and you cannot get around the power poles with your large equipment, we have very large equipment, they either spray with Roundup around the poles and in the ditches to maintain weed control, or they pay a farmer. In my case, they pay. They have paid me to maintain weed control. They pay us for doing that work and spraying Roundup. And in 1997, and this had been done on my farm for probably 15 years because it was one of the main power lines. Uh, then in 1997, we noticed after that spraying was done in the ditch that there were some canola plants that didn't die. And being a seed developer, I was really you know, surprised by that. And then immediately I thought because it had been sprayed continuously in that same area for many years that these plants had naturally resisted or grown immune to that chemical. And so it was very obvious. Everything else was brown after you sprayed because it's Roundup is supposed to kill any green thing or plant. And here you had canola plants, a few of them, not many, but some, that were growing and were nice and green and healthy. And to further that, uh, when I seen that as a seed developer, I said to the person that helped me, I had a person, I didn't do the actual backpack spraying around the poles myself. I said, what happened here? I said, didn't you mix the chemical right? And he said, no, the, the usual formula. So what we did, we sprayed it twice. And again, the canola didn't die. So then we also sprayed it with a 2,4-D, which should have killed it, and it didn't die. So already we had to superweed by 1998, you see, three years after. But the superweed had already been established the first year. So it was very obvious. Monsanto seen that. They knew I was a seed developer and developing seeds or plants, and that's when they laid the uh, lawsuit against me. And the court ruled it doesn't matter where the seed came from. And we had established the contamination came from direct seed movement. And the judge ruled it doesn't matter how it gets there. His words, that's immaterial. If it's there, if the presence is there, under patent law, you're guilty, you violated the patent. I'm speaking with Canadian farmer and seed developer, Percy Schmeiser. Today's show, Monsanto Corporation and Genetic Modification, Part 1. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, how did Monsanto find out about this contamination around the pole by the ditch in your field? I'm not sure, but I, uh, there's a number of ways. Monsanto has these gene police, as we call them. They drive through the countryside and look at farmers' canola fields. And I'm told they even will take Roundup to spray on the edge of a farmer's field or they'll go into a farmer's field without permission, they'll trespass, take leaves of plants, or if it's in the pod stage, take some of the pods and then do a grow-out test or DNA testing. That's how they'll, they'll go. They'll go in any farmer's field they want and trespass. And in plain language, they'll steal farmer seeds or plants to, for testing. In my case, it was right along the road in the ditch and... It was very noticeable because everything else was dead or and brown, and here you had some canola plants. But also, Monsanto hires people to inform for them. And if they do, if they see something abnormal, they'll report to Monsanto. And, and in my trial, a person working, we call him an informer, 
who was working for Monsanto, had to testify that he did tell Monsanto he thought that possibly I could be grown or had was contaminated with Monsanto's GMOs. So part of the community then have become informers. That's right. They pay, like uh, they advertise. They advertise in their brochures, in their newspapers, that if you think your neighbor is growing GMOs, canola or soybeans, whatever, without a license, you should inform on your neighbor. And if a neighbor happens to do that to his fellow neighbor and reports to Monsanto that, that he thinks his neighbor's going GMOs, he gets a free leather jacket from Monsanto or he gets free chemicals or whatever. And Monsanto will never, ever pay in cash. It's always in a product. And believe me, right now, there's not very many farmers wearing Monsanto's jackets on the prairies because if they do... And right away, people say, well, there go, there's a ratter or a, a squealer and a ratter and an informer. But that's what they do. And when Monsanto gets that information from someone that says, we think this farm is growing GMOs, they'll immediately send two of their investigators or gene police or in the United States, they use Pickerton Investigation Services out to your farm and they'll come to a farm home. And the first thing they'll say, like in Canada, we're ex or former RCMP officers, Royal Canadian Mounted Police. And a lot of times the farmers never hear the X. They only hear the word police. And which is illegal for the former police officers to even use their former position to say this. And so a farmer is really, immediately, what, what did I do wrong? And they'll go on to say to a farmer, we have this tip, uh, a rumor that you're growing GMOs without a license, and farmer will say, no, I'm a, I've never used your seed or your plants. I'm an organic farmer. I'm a conventional farmer. And they'll say to a farmer, then you're lying. If you don't confess, we'll get you. And by the time we drag you through the courts, you won't have a farm left. So what happens after these gene police, as we call them, leave a farmer's home, I think is the worst thing that could happen with the introduction of GMOs. It's bad enough that seeds and plants, human health, environment. A farmer will think, well, is it this neighbor here? Or this neighbor down the road here? Or this neighbor down the road over here? That has caused me this trouble. And right away you got a suspicion. Uh, farmers not trusting one another. Farmers scared to talk to one another of what they were growing or, or seeding or harvesting on Coffee Road, where farmers like to discuss a lot of their farming affairs or activities with their fellow neighbors, basically has stopped because now you have developed the breakdown of a real social fabric with Monsanto's policy of divide and conquer. And I often have said that that when my grandparents left Europe, and they came to a new land. My grandparents and my parents had to work together with our neighbors to build our country, our infrastructure, our schools, our roads, our hospitals, churches, and so on. You have that breakdown of that world social fabric. And believe me, it's real. It's really real. And uh, even farmers now have come to me and they said they were scared to even talk to me when my case was going on with Monsanto because Monsanto warned them, if you support Percy Schmeiser, we're going to come after you and you won't have a farm left. So you can imagine that whole new fear culture that has been established on the prairies and the great western plains. Percy, you have said that this is one of the saddest aspects of this uh genetic modification is the disruption and the destruction of the world's social fabric. That's right. And um, if uh, GMOs are allowed into many other countries, you're going to have, first of all, the total control of seed supply and ultimately the food supply. 
and in many, many countries of the world, the raising of food or the producing of food and of plants is a real cultural. And even in some countries, it's a part of their religion. You know, if you look at Mexico, corn was a god to them. And now all of a sudden you have that whole cultural as well as the fear, the breakdown or the whole new fear culture or the destroying of a former culture happening with the introduction of GMOs. These are things that you never hear. You don't hear that in campaigns about these contracts. Or another thing, the extortion letters. There's thousands of those that have been sent out. And that's what farmers call them. And I have many copies of letters or even the original letters sent to farmers where it states that we think you might be grown Monsanto's GMO canola, or soybeans, and they'll go on to say, oh, 200 acres, 500 acres, whatever, send us $200,000, $300,000, $50,000 by a certain date, and we may or may not take you to court or lay a lawsuit against you. Farmers have received these letters on land that was not even ceded to canola, but it was a means of intimidation and harassment to settle, to keep farmers quiet or not say nothing negative about Monsanto. I have the firm belief that if anybody said something negative about Monsanto, they got one of those letters. And can you imagine the fear in a farm family when they get a letter from a multi-billion dollar corporation, send us $100,000 in two weeks' time, and we may or may not take you to court because we think you might be growing it. These are not a few. There's thousands of those. Again, that whole fear culture. So in that letter, though, there's another important clause. It states in that letter, you're not allowed to show this letter to anyone or we will fine you. So a farmer gets this letter. They say, if you show it to anybody, you show it to the press, we're going to fine you for that. So a lot of farmers have turned these letters over to me and said, if we're going to lose the whole farm, we've got nothing more to lose. And they've turned them over to me. I put them on my website. I give them out around the world. Thousands of these letters that have been sent out to intimidate, harass, and suppress farmers' rights. Now, if I, if I would go out to a farmer and say, pay me $1,000, and uh, pay me $1,000 and I'll make sure your tractor doesn't get destroyed or shot at or the tires flatten. I'd get thrown in jail. Or give me $1,000 and I won't you know, see that your windows won't get broken. See? Extortion. Do you know farmers who have paid Monsanto off to leave them alone? There are 93 documented cases alone in the United States where, uh, where Monsanto took them to court. And the average settlement was 150000 The other farmers that did not go to court... Some told me that they were told they would be let off, but they would then have to become informers. We had a businessman that come and told me, and he he had made a contract for 200 acres. And when he was through seeding, he ended up with 208 acres, which is quite normal. When you're seeding, you never come out exactly. He had made a contract for 200 acres, come out with 208 acres, and he never notified Monsanto that he had ceded an additional eight acres. And he should have paid Monsanto another $15 an acre. But he didn't bother to do that. Monsanto came along, like I said, they can go in your granaries, get all your tax records, your farming records. Here they look at his farming records. He's got 208 acres. 
uh, he made a contract for only 200 So they said to him, we're going to fine you $200 on every acre. And, well, the farmer said, you know, I didn't do it intentionally. It's just what happened. Well, they said, you tried to cheat us out of $120. So finally, uh, they said to the farmer, okay, you have to pay us that money, that $120, which is, you know, a small amount. But you ha- he was in business and he had a lot of customers come in who were mostly farmers. And he said, you have to listen for us, what farmers are talking about. And if, if this farmer is growing GMO canola, you have to let us know, mark his name down and inform him that. So that's what they'll do. They'll get the fuel dealer to that. They'll get a, a machine dealer to that if they happen to get them under control. So it's a real... It's just like in the war, where you spy on this, you spy on that. That's what they encourage. Something happening, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What it is ain't exactly clear. There's a man with a gun over there. I've been speaking with Percy Schmeiser. Percy Schmeiser is a longtime farmer and farm equipment dealer from the small rural community of Bruno, Saskatchewan. He served as mayor of the town of Bruno from 1966 to 1983 and also as a member of the Legislative Assembly in the provincial legislature from 1967 to 1971. Percy Schmeiser travels internationally, speaking on the many dangers of genetically modified organisms. Guns and Butter is edited and produced by Yaromako and me, Bonnie Faulkner. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.net or visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.net. Trying to steal your life, you know what I'm saying? Look what this side just sell.